uh, you may notice that the good Reverend Scott Shelton is not here today. He, uh, yesterday, his uh, Aunt Claire's eldest son, um, Jacob, uh, got married, and so uh, it was a, a great celebration uh, for sure. And uh, when I left, which was not very late, Scott had already taken off his jacket, and he was just whipping it around and dancing. It was quite the sight. So... Uh, I'm hopeful that we'll have some video to show next week of that, and, um, but it, uh, it, it was great, so congratulations to the Sheltons uh, on, that big, uh, on that big occasion. Well, all right, sisters and brothers, uh, we're looking uh, at the Gospel of Luke uh, once again, and today we're looking at, the chapter, at chapter 14, the first 14 verses. So uh, with that, let's see what Luke has to say to us today. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. And just then, in front of him, there was a man who had edema. And Jesus asked the experts in the law and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, If one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted." He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers and sisters or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us on this morning. Speak to us in such a way that we might hear it, that we might chew on it, that we might reflect and ask how we might be shaped more and more like you. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So once again, Jesus is continuing his march toward Jerusalem. But today it seems like things slow down just a bit because Jesus uh, takes the time to heal someone of edema or dropsy. It's called different things in scripture. Then he takes the time to have a conversation about the Sabbath and Finally, he takes the time, of course, to stop and to eat and to to tell a parable. 
All of these things are going on, but we shouldn't uh, be mistaken. Uh, the shadow of the cross is still over everything that is happening. In fact, uh, this is still a serious matter. Fred Craddock says that when it comes to Jesus, it's really hard to find anything more serious than the dining room table. The dining room table is where Jesus oftentimes has more conversations about the kingdom of God. The dining room table, of course, is where he sat and broke bread at the Last Supper. The dining room table, of course, is where uh, those disciples' eyes were opened when they were on their way to Emmaus. The dining room table is where Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come. The, The dining room table is very serious business. And as they're on their way towards this dining room table, it seems, they come across a man with edema. And so the Pharisees were told they are watching Jesus intently. And we should be clear when it says that more than likely it's not watching intently so that they might emulate him. It's probably watching intently so that they might catch him doing something or saying something that, uh, that he was not supposed to on the Sabbath. However, we should also be very mindful that it is really easy for us to paint with very broad strokes when it comes to the Pharisees. And that's perhaps unwise because when we do so, uh, it means that we don't allow the Pharisees to teach us anything. We begin to think, well, they're all evil and they're just wanting evil and therefore we can't uh, understand them. We can't empathize with them. But the truth is, as Alan Culpepper says, no, they're actually much more like us than we would be mindful of. In fact, he says, a part of the reason why it's hard for us to understand why they're so you know, caught up with the Sabbath is because for the vast majority of us, the Sabbath means very little at all. The Sabbath is just kind of a day when we catch up on everything that we didn't get to uh, Monday through Saturday and in order to get us ready for the coming week. But for the Pharisees, the Sabbath was a day that was clearly set apart in order to give thanks to God, in order to celebrate God, in order to be something that is sacred and set apart. And so again, as Culpepper says, the truth is this, the Pharisees were not really trying to decide here between good and evil. They were trying to decide between what is good and what is even better. And that's very difficult for us to wrestle with. And not for Jesus, of course. When Jesus sees, even on the Sabbath day, and he took it very seriously, he looked at this man with edema and he realized, well, this is the better, right? Rather than making sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed in terms of the Sabbath rules, he decided that he was going to heal that man. He remembered, as he said elsewhere, of course, that man was not made for Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man, And so he goes ahead and he heals him. Now, I want to just say one other thing about this edema that he has. In the Greek, it kind of almost means waterlogged, right? He he began to swell up because he had so much water. But one of the really horrible afflictions about this in that time was was that it also gave you an insatiable thirst, And so it was an image then that was actually used in that time to mean much more than just kind of that physical uh, malady. It was actually oftentimes used to depict or to symbolize greed or a desire for honor. Because it said that the more that you have, the more wealth you have, the more honor you have, that actually just cultivates an even more insatiable thirst for more wealth and for more honor. It's this kind of fascinating image of greed, And it is with that image that then Luke tells us, or takes us, I should say, to this very next part of 
the story. There they are. They're looking out. Jesus is looking out, and he's watching. Jesus is always watching. Should make us all nervous a little bit. He's always watching. He's observing. How are people acting? And as he looks, he notices that people want kind of the seats of honor. Now, in some ways, it's hard for us to understand that in this context uh, because we don't really live necessarily in that kind of world. Uh, the examples I could think of were, were like kind of wedding examples. I don't know. I've not uh, had to kind of deal with a, a, a uh, setting up tables and, and kind of figuring out. But I think that's probably one of the more stressful things is, you know, who sits with whom, right? And, 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 and who sits, I don't really, I still don't actually know which seat, which tables are the best. I'd like to know because I want to know whether I should feel good about myself. But, uh, but you know, like is, is the one, do you want to be really close to the head table so that you can see it or the dance floor? Or is it actually better to be further away so you can just make fun of people like Pastor Scott who are dancing? What's the best way? I don't know, but I do know because I've heard this, that there's pressure, you know, where do you, put people or or perhaps another example is something like middle school high school you know lunch table there's always a lot of you know anxiety around that I can always remember that who am I going to sit next to you know and is that does that is that good or bad or do I have at least somebody to sit next to so perhaps in some ways we have some similarities there and so Jesus gives a parable of sorts. He says, well, you know what? If you were to have a wedding banquet, you should do your best to actually not try to sit, you know, at the highest places of highest honor. You should actually, you know, go to the lowest because, you know, what you do not want is you do not want the host to come and tell you in front of everybody, you've got to stand up. You have to go further down the chain if you will. No, no, no. It's much better to actually start further down and then stand up and go over because otherwise you will bring yourself shame. And, and we should remember that shame in that time and place was not just a bad feeling. Shame had actual uh, fiscal importance, if you will. If you brought shame to your family or to the community, then people would begin to barter with you differently. Then people would begin to change those who they might allow you to marry or your children to marry. This was a big deal. And so Jesus says, no, you should humble. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Now, in some ways, if you just take this parable at a glance, it looks like it's maybe just a, a cute little parable on manners or maybe one on kind of, you know, how to succeed by acting like you don't care. But I don't think that's really all that Jesus is trying to do here. No, the truth is what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to remind the people of the importance of humility. Now, humility is not something, as you may know, that was, uh, that was esteemed back in the time of Jesus. By and large, it wasn't about being humble. It was about a sense of kind of, you know, of pride. You would not want to be humble. That was not looked at as a virtue. And we've changed in some ways. We at least give lip service in our culture to the importance of humility and to the importance of not being prideful or arrogant. But truth be told, deep down, in our culture, what is primarily kind of cultivated, of course, is a sense of pride, right? I mean, think about this. You know, it's almost impossible, but when you're wanting to get into college, you know, what do you do? You, you figure out every good thing you can say about yourself. Who says, you know, who goes and says, well, as you can see from my transcript, I'm kind of, you know, I, I, <laughs> I did not study very much. You know, when you're going for a job interview, you know, you, you don't go and say like, well, I got to tell you, my last job, I hardly ever showed up on time. 
No, we're cultivated, right? It's in the very soil, right? We have to do everything we can, right? And, and so I was, I was fascinated by some uh, research that I found uh, or came across this week in a book called The Truth About Us by Brant Hansen. Uh, it, it, it's wonderful to see how we view ourselves, right? A vast majority of people, when they do these surveys, feel that they are morally superior to others, They believe that they are more just, a majority of people, more virtuous, that they are more moral than others. Now, you realize, math-wise, this is an impossibility, right? It would be maybe 50% who would actually be better than that. They, They think that they are smarter than your average person, that they are um, more friendly. 93% of people believe that they are better drivers than other people. And as Hansen goes on to say, unless lest you think that we have an ego problem, you should know that a distinct majority of people think that they are more modest than other people. So we have all of this sense, right? I mean, as you think about who are we, you have all of this sense that, that by and large, the majority of us think that we are a little bit better than everybody else and that we are also more humble than everybody else. In other words, we tend to not really see ourselves very clearly. And Christians, uh, I'd love to say Christians do a lot better. I don't have research on this, but I've just worked with a lot of Christians. So have you, right? We know, and I know a while back now, someone had recommended me uh, the book, More Of or Less Of. That's one of those times you don't even ask questions. You just take it and you just say, okay, thanks. But it was a, it's a good book. So I, I, spent, I spent the week, it's been on my shelf for a while, and when I saw this passage, I said, okay, I'm going to read through it. And, and so Richard Foster wrote this book. It's a very interesting book. And he brings up that humility comes from the word, the Latin word humilitas. I think I'm saying that right, something like that. Uh, and, and what that means is grounded or from the earth. Okay, it's the same way that we get the word hummus uh, is from this word kind of from the earth or, or grounded, right? And so Richard Foster then, he goes on to say this, if we can see that. He says this, with humility, we are brought back to earth. We don't think of ourselves higher than we should, nor do we think of ourselves lower than we should. No pride or haughtiness, no self-deprecation or feelings of unworthiness just an accurate assessment of who we actually are, our strengths and competencies, and yes, our weaknesses and our shortcomings. You see, humility is about being able to see yourself as you actually are. In fact, the message version of, of, uh, of Luke 14, 11 says this, but if you are content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. So it is about being able to see ourselves as we actually are. But again, that is very challenging. And we spend a lot of our times in our culture and just internally with kind of thinking about where is our value 
And, and so I was, I was uh, intrigued by something that James Bryan Smith said about all of this. He was talking about uh, vainglory, which is just a type of pride, and, and, and about our culture, and, and, and why is it that we struggle with this so much? And here's what, uh, here's what Smith said. He says this, We feel the need to be appreciated, respected, applauded, and affirmed for what we do. Then we feel good about ourselves. And the need for love is temporarily assuaged by admiration. It is the only substitute we can find. Unfortunately, admiration based on our looks or performance is fickle and fleeting. We are only as good as our next performance. Now, here's what I thought about. And each of us has this in our own line of work. Here's, I'm a pastor, so it's kind of what I, what I speak about, okay? So, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but it's like preaching for me. So, uh, and I, I was trying to, I, I keep noticing that I'm trying to be self-deprecating. So I'm trying not to be because that's not necessarily what humility is. So I'm trying to be humble here. So uh, I'll say it anyways. Every once in a while, I preach a good sermon, okay? It's an okay sermon, fine, all right? And so why do I know this? Because people will come and they'll say, hey, I really appreciate it. That, you know what, that had, a, that had an impact on my life and, you know, that was meaningful. And some sermons, you know, you get more of those than others. And, and I, 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 it means a lot to me when people say that. I really am very appreciative. And I, and I think that that's okay. I think it's okay, right? I, I don't think that what the Lord is saying is, hey, you know what, Jerry, I'd really love for you to preach the most boring sermon that has no impact on anybody. That's really humble. I don't think that's actually what God has created us to do, right? So whatever your line of work is, this happens to be my line of work. That's what I think about. I think that's okay, and I can be thankful, and of course I can give thanks to God, and that is all good and right, right? It doesn't seem to me there's any pride that's kind of crept in in those moments. However, what happens, and why I was struck by this quote, is that that next week, let's say Tuesday, Wednesday, especially Thursday when I do most of my writing, I remember what they said. And I think, oh, I loved that feeling. I love that. But what if, what if I preach another sermon this Sunday and they just walk by and it's clear they hated the sermon? What am I going to do? And so then all of a sudden you begin to worry about that, right? And you begin to think, well, what can I say? How am I going to say this so that they applaud me? How am I going to say it so that there's admiration, you know? And so when he says you're only as good as your next performance, this is what happens when you begin to do things for the wrong reasons, when you begin to do things for affirmation. It's great that Sunday when they're saying, hey, all right. But then Wednesday and Thursday, you're like, oh my goodness, I've got to do this again. And, and it begins to skew everything everything. And so I love this kind of vision about what humility is and what it's not. It's not about just say, oh, you know, I'm always horrible. Oh, I always do a poor job. No. But the question is, in those moments when you are affirmed, where does that go? And does it only take you until the next event? Or instead, are you able to be simply content with who Christ says you are? I love what C.S. Lewis says. Humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It is about thinking of yourself less. So how then do we cultivate humility? Have you ever tried this? Have you ever tried to say, you know what I would really like? I would like to become more humble. Well, 
again, what the church fathers and mothers would say is the only way to become more humble by and large is to actually work on it. There are very few of us who go to sleep prideful and wake up humble. So what do we actually do? I mean, if you genuinely say, I want to work at at this kind of being humble, if it is the garden of all the other virtues, then I should begin to work on this humility. What does that look like? Well, of course, the most significant way, it seems to me, is by being able to focus on the most humble one that we know, right? And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. And I love, you know, this this, uh, passage in Philippians is very clear about this. Here's what Philippians says. It says this, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, what does Richard Foster say? From the very beginning, he had humble beginnings, born in the stable. You know that. He dealt with the poor. He dealt with the marginalized. He was always dealing with the humbled. He washed the feet of his disciples. He sought out the poor and the hurting. He rode a borrowed donkey. He endured his mock trial and crucifixion with hardly even a word. This is who Jesus is. So part of the reason why we go through Luke, of course, is because we realize that in simply going through Luke and watching Jesus and soaking Jesus, this should begin to immerse us more and more into a humble people. But something else that people continually came back to when it came to cultivating humility is the fact that we need to do more kind of service. And oftentimes what they said is, Uh, anonymous service. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, something that nobody knows about, but it certainly means doing the, what are these acts of service that we might do uh, that that we don't post, uh, you know, um, on social media, you know, and that we don't tell people that we admire, you know, in the hopes of gaining something and that we don't even need a thank you for. Um, this is not necessarily easy, right? Uh, you know, it might be something at your workplace, right? Most of us have a workplace and most of us have things that, you know, if we're really honest, that are a little bit beneath us. What if, what if we do some of those things without anyone knowing, right? What if we, we do those things in the quiet and, you know, or, or what about, this is what I was thinking about this week, what about doing something with the, in, in your own household, right? If you live with other people, uh, this is oftentimes the the best place that we can serve and try to do so humbly. I, I actually practiced it this week. Uh, I don't know if my kids noticed, um, which defeats the purpose. Uh, but, you know, I try to do one or two things that, that aren't kind of, you know, we, I mean, we, we, we typically have things we do. You know, I mow the lawn, other people do other things, right? And, and so, you know, every one of us has a day when we, uh, oh, you're right, now you guys are starting to mow the lawn. You're right, I saw that look of no. That's true, my two daughters are now mowing the lawn. Can you guys leave so I can tell this story? (laughs) So the question then is, you know, what what could I do? Is there an act or two that I could do without, you know, without anyone, you know, noticing or without me needing them to notice? And so I would encourage you, you know, as you look around, what's something that you can do? and, and, And here's what's great is to then test your heart. And to ask yourself this question. This is why it's such a great measuring tool. How did I feel when I did this? Is there something in me that says, I really would love for someone to say thank you. 
Or, you know, is there anything in there like says, hey, do you want to notice, right? Do you do it? And then, you know, you're like, hey, wow, looks like somebody emptied out the dishwasher. I wonder who. How much do you want to do that? Right? As a way of just kind of examining, as a way of kind of seeing, right? This is a great kind of a barometer for how is it that we're doing, right? These acts of anonymous service, what does that look like and feel like to you? I think another thing that we can do is we can begin to go out and uh, find people, especially perhaps, again, maybe it's somebody who's in your own line of work um, um, who's, who's humble. I mean, I, I actually think it's not that hard to find people like that. Right? The truth is that people who are humble, they tend to stand out a little bit. Right, There's not lots of them, but, but when they are, you kind of, you kind of know it. I know that uh, back in 2010 or so, when I realized that my call at my first congregation was kind of coming to an end, I, I looked, you know, there was about four or five other pastors, I picked them out, who I said, I'm going to reach out to see if they're hiring because I, I would love to work with them. And each of them, um, um, as I look back on it, each of them were very humble. And I, I realized that by working with them, you know, it would be helpful to me, right? To simply sometimes just to be with people, right? To hang out with those who are humble is, is, is remarkable, right? To, to really be intentional, to grab lunch with them or to have coffee with them or whatever it may be to say, hey, I, you know, and you don't have to tell them, hey, I really want to hang out with you because you're humble. That might be weird, but just to hang with them, to be intentional. Uh, Richard Foster also says, you know what? You might want to hang out with uh, people who work the land, right? Like farmers, right? Again, we go back to humilitas, right? We go back to the soil, uh, you know, that sometimes when you go out there and you see a lot of farmers and you're with farmers, you get that. Now, please hear me. There are arrogant farmers. It's not like, you know, as soon as you start farming that all of a sudden you have no pride. I know that that's the case, but there is something about working with people who are actually working the land, who, 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 who help to cultivate that, that they're oftentimes a little bit more kind of salt of the earth, if you will. I'll be honest with you, if I can be, I think I've said this before, uh, but one of the things I love about CPC is that, um, how do I say this? Um, I love that a lot of you didn't grow up in wealth. You, you, you grow up kind of more maybe on farms or in farmland or whatnot. And I want you to know I can tell the difference uh, more often than not with people who kind of grew up, who, who didn't necessarily grow up with wealth, who are very kind of salt of the earth. It is a gift. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Now, if you grew up with wealth, that's fine. There's nothing, you know, you can still be humble. But I'm just saying it's good for us to kind of surround ourselves with those sorts of people. I, I also think just being out in nature is really helpful, too, if, in terms of cultivating humility. Maybe gardening. I haven't done this yet because I just don't, I don't want to. But I... I, I, I I think it's probably good, right, to work with the soil, to get your fingers dirty, to be patient, to have to wait for the, for the fruit or vegetable to grow, I guess typically the vegetable to grow, right? whatever it may be, to, to begin to do that. How do we kind of cultivate that? All of these things are intentional acts. Again, you will not wake up just feeling more humble. It is a sense of kind of working on the garden of all virtues. Now, one of those virtues that begins to grow up that we see in our scripture passage today is hospitality. This is one of those great kind of virtues that begins to come up 
with hospitality. It takes a lot of humility to be humble. And it's why, you know, Jesus looks at the Pharisee and he says, you know, whenever it is that you begin to invite people over, you know, you should try something a little different. Uh, you, should, you should try to invite people who are, the, those who are poor, those who are crippled, those who are lame or, or blind. These are really the kind of people that you should begin to invite. What does that mean? In other words, don't just invite people who are like you. Don't just invite people who make your life comfortable. Don't just invite people who, you know, will, will help you in the pecking order of life. Invite people who, who, who may not be able to return it and invite people who make you uncomfortable. Invite people who, who, who make you perhaps even vulnerable. I mean, one of the things that uh, Henry Nowen says is that, you know, when it comes to humility and hospitality, uh, one of the things it does is it allows, puts you in a position to be changed. When you're with people who are all just like you and have the same opinions, they vote the same way, they, they worship the same way, all those things, the likelihood of you being changed very much is not that great. So there's a vulnerability then in a hospitality that is birthed out of humility. In fact, Luke Powery makes this interesting point. I never really thought about this. He says, etymologically, uh, the word uh, hostility is embedded in the word hospitality. Every time that we are hospitable to people who are very different than us and who may challenge us, uh, we, are, we are made vulnerable. I've been thinking about that. Um, I was thinking about that and thinking about what we've been doing as a staff for the last couple of weeks, uh, and we're going to do it for the next five or six weeks as a staff. Uh, we've been talking about the, the very difficult issue of racism. Uh, and, and you can imagine, you know, whenever you start talking about racism, there's people who have lots of different views on this, lots of different thoughts on this, you know. And, and even just when I say it, you know, hey, we're going to talk about racism. There are people like, oh, geez, you know, why do we have to talk about this? And then on the other extreme, you have people be like, oh, yes, finally, we're talking about this, right? And, and so you bring all of this, you know, you, you kind of bring all of this together. And it can be, it can be really, really humbling. It can be really uncomfortable, at times, you know, but we wanted to create space. We wanted to, you know, we wanted to create this kind of hospitable space to say, let's have a conversation around this. And, and we need to have this conversation, I think, as a staff for a couple of reasons. One, you know, as we look at Crooked Creek and continuing to work with folks down there, the more embedded we get down there, the more that we kind of wrestle with things, the more that we need to be able to understand and to, again, remember what humility is, see ourselves clearly. Right? But we also need to look at it because the truth is, of course, is that we are not perfect when it comes to this. We have flaws when it comes to racism, right? As a people, uh, you know, we have, we have mistakes that we have made. We have things that we need to be honest about and to see uh, ourselves more clearly. And so, and so there's this great kind of uh, opportunity and invitation for us to have these really honest conversations. And so we've been doing that. I've not been leading it. Um, uh, we've been bringing in someone named Brittany Wayman, who's done a great job. We're reading a book called uh, Be the Bridge, which is kind of a look at Christian reconciliation when it comes to races. And it's a real challenge, you know, because, you know, you, you, it's really easy when you're reading, especially something, you know, that you're like, I don't know. And, 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 and what I notice this in myself, maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but, but it's easy to get defensive. Anyone here ever get defensive? And immediately, you know what you want to do? You want to point out to, oh, you don't see this correctly. You don't see yourself correctly right here, right? And this is what's fascinating is to try to shut that off to say, wait, if humility is about do I see myself clearly, then I'm not going to point out every kind of, well, I don't think you're right about this. I don't think you, I'm going to simply ask this question. What, am I seeing myself clearly? 
And it's really nerve-wracking. I love the fact that we're doing this with Christian brothers and sisters because it's really nerve-wracking because you're afraid I, I might make a mistake, I'm gonna say something I shouldn't say or, or do something I shouldn't do. Or, you know, but, but, but we've created this space, if you will, this hospitable space to be able to have these conversations. And the very first chapter or two really talk about being truthful, being honest, right? Again, this comes to humility. Do we see clearly? And, and, and one of the things you know, that, we, that we looked at was they were talking about a lynching that occurred uh, with a woman named Mary Turner. I'm not going to go into it because it's, it's brutal. But I was reminded um, in that, um, that that the very last lynching uh, that occurred in Indiana was in Marion, uh, Indiana. And do you know when that happened? It happened, uh, it's actually one of the most famous pictures, heartbreaking picture, in 1930. Do you know we have ZPCers who were alive in 1930? Um. And of course, you have other things that kind of go into this and that are continuing. And so we have all of these things that as we, you know, as we wrestle with this and as we wrestle with kind of the uncomfortability of this and the, the vulnerability of this and trying to be uh, as honest as we can be and, and trying to see ourselves clearly, um, um, trying to cultivate this humility and knowing that we're not going to do it perfectly. That's the thing. It's a lot easier to just not even try. And so I was really, I was going to do my best to have a sermon this week that did not have Eugene Peterson in it, but I couldn't help it. <laughs> because he talks a little bit, he deals with humility, and, and, and in his book, uh, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, this, is, this is what he says. He says this. He says, every day I put my love on the line. There is nothing I am less good at than love. I am far better in competition than in love. I'm far better at responding to my instincts and ambitions to get ahead and make my mark than I am at figuring out how to love one another. I am schooled and trained in acquisitive skills and getting my own way, and yet I decide every day to set aside what I can do best and attempt what I do very clumsily, open myself to the frustrations and failures of loving, daring to believe that failing in love is better than succeeding in pride. Isn't that a great line? I want to read that again. Let's go to that next slide because it has it, just that, that, that sentence. And yet I decide every day it is a decision to set aside what I can do best and attempt what I do very clumsily, open myself to the frustrations and failures of loving, daring to believe that failing in love is better than succeeding in pride. Are we willing to fail in love? Are we willing to be hospitable, to be made vulnerable? Because we know that to do so, we may fail, but it is better to have lost at that than to have succeeded at being prideful, at never being vulnerable, at never making mistakes, at never fumbling with anything whatsoever. But it is a daily decision. What is Paul saying, Colossians? Clothe yourselves with humility. We clothe ourselves every single day. You do not clothe yourself once a week or once a month or once a year. You do not think, well, maybe this year I'll try once to be humble. No, every day we make a decision. And so all of us have this great decision to make. Are we going to cultivate humility? And in so doing, what other virtues like hospitality, hospitality might begin to bloom in our lives. Sisters and brothers, we will not always succeed. 
But it is better for us to fail in love and humility and hospitality than to succeed in pride. May that be our prayer. Amen and amen. Let's pray. God, we do not often pray for humility. And we are oftentimes afraid to see ourselves as we actually are. But I pray, God, that you would move in us. That we would see, Lord, that humility is the garden of all of the other virtues. And that as we grow in humility, might our virtues like patience and gentleness and hospitality begin to grow, to bloom, and to bear much fruit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.